For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at this little book at the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk. You know the dad joke about Habakkuk? Habakkuk! In fact, have two, they're only small. The point of me telling the dad joke is that this is a small book, so why not read through the book during the week, this afternoon? Listen to it on the Bible app if you have that on your phone. Why would you want to do that? Well, on September the 11th, 2001, when planes crashed into the World Trade Center in New York and the world watched in horror, this was the book of the Bible that I turned to and together with the other people I was with. It helped me, it helped us to express something of the emotion that I was feeling as I witnessed those events. It gave me words to voice my questions and the cry of my heart. For example, verse 2, the question there, How long, Lord? As well as the wonderful prayer of chapter 3. This small book is well worth reading and rereading. We know very little about Habakkuk the man, the prophet, other than what we can work out from the book itself. So verse 6 is key. It talks about God raising up the Babylonians. So they're not yet at the peak of their power. They haven't yet conquered Jerusalem, although it won't be long. Which means we're somewhere around 606 to 10 BC or thereabouts, possibly the time of the reign of a king called Jehoiakim. Let me read what 2 Kings says about him. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Egypt, invaded the land. So, you've got a 25-year-old becoming king and doing evil in the eyes of God. Now, that would be pretty bad news for any country. It's especially bad news for the Jewish people because of the relationship between them and God, a relationship of covenant. Covenant's a word we don't use that much, but we can understand it from the most common kind of covenant, marriage, where two people promise to have and to hold, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death and do part. In the Old Testament covenant, God does that for the Jewish people. He promises to bless Abraham and his descendants. He rescues them from oppression in Egypt. He gives them the promised land and commits himself to them as his very own people. God takes all the initiative in the relationship. The response he looks for from the people is a commitment to live under his law with him as their king. And there are blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience. The people chose to commit themselves in that way to God and, and formed a covenant with him. That means that the prophets who come along, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest of them, they come along... Not so much with marriage guidance as with marriage enforcement. Calling out the failings and calling them back to the covenant that they've made. Saying something like, God's desire is to bless you. But if you keep doing evil, he will have to punish you. So turn back. And that's what makes Habakkuk stand out from the other prophets. Because in this book, the conversation's the other way around. Between him and God. He's not preaching to the people. He's wrestling with God. And saying to God, why aren't you acting on your side of the covenant? 
I see evil all around me. Verse 2, violence. Verse 3, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, strife, conflict. But God, you're not judging people. How long, Lord, must I pray like this? It looks for all the world like you do not listen and like you tolerate wrongdoing. It's a pretty bold prayer, isn't it? And yet it's a Bible prayer. There are times when this is the right thing to pray, to appeal to God, to wrestle with God, to ask him to intervene, to come to him with our questions and all the pain we're feeling. Something might happen to us or to family and friends or something might happen in the world like 9-11 or like the attacks in London and our hearts cry out for justice. Well, the example of Habakkuk is not just to feel the frustration and the pain but to take it to God, to cry out to him. We have that permission as the people of God. And this question, how long, is repeated several times in the Psalms. If you read through them, we looked it up in a word search uh, in the week. It's well worth doing that. And seeing the different situations where these same words are used in prayer to God to cry out to him. As Christians, we often emphasise the way that faith in Jesus is a tremendous comfort, which it is. But let's not overstate that. Christian faith raises lots of questions. Our message, message is not, believe in Jesus and everything will make sense. Just read another Old Testament book, Job, if you're not convinced of that. Because believers and unbelievers alike face the distress of suffering. But believers have the added spiritual distress of why are you letting this happen, Lord? Why me? Why now? Why aren't you doing something? Well, you'll see from verses 5 to 11 that Habakkuk gets a clear answer from God. Verse 5, God is going to do something utterly amazing. Hair-raising is the way we'd say it. Something that sounds unbelievable that God would do this. He's going to punish his people for their wickedness, as the covenant uh, explains. But he's going to do that by, verse 6, sending the ruthless, lawless, self-glorifying Babylonians who are going to destroy everything and enslave everyone in their path. And you can imagine Hollywood doing the CGI, the uh, special effects for verses 6 to 11. Horses swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves, cavalry galloping headlong, sweeping through everything and destroying it. Well, if Habakkuk had a problem in verses 2 to 4, he's really got a problem now. Sure, the Jewish people are doing evil things all the time, but Babylon is even worse than Israel. More corrupt, more violent. They treat people like animals, verse 15, gathering them up like fish in a net. They devour nations in order to build their empire, and they worship their own military power, verse 11. How can that be your plan, God? That's going to mean more injustice, not less. It would be like praying earnestly to God about knife crime in London and God answering, don't worry, before you know it, the Russians are going to rise to their former power and they're going to sweep their tanks through Europe and take over London. Huh? That would be much worse. That's how this news, how this announcement sounds to Habakkuk and the way he responds is what we really learn from the book. 
about prayer. He speaks out with God. He speaks out what he knows of God. And then he wrestles with it. He argues with God on the basis of who God is. Verse 12. You are the Holy One. Yet you've appointed them to execute judgment. Verse 13. God and evil are eternal opposites. Your eyes are too pure to even look at it. But you say nothing while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Do you see? He, he's taking what he knows of God. He's wrestling with God. He's trying to work it out. He's expressing how he feels. He's appealing to God to act. That's prayer. Not just, please Lord, would the bus come soon? It's raining, I'm getting cold. Well, that's also prayer. But this is deep, real, raw prayer. This is what we should do when we're in pain and when our hearts cry out for justice. So I was once on a conference praying in a small group uh, and there was a retired missionary as part of that group of us praying. I can't remember the exact situation we were praying about but I can remember what he prayed. What it, whatever it was that we were praying about, he said, Lord, this doesn't look good on you. And I can remember thinking, gosh, that's a man who's learnt to pray, who knows his God, who knows the Bible, knows from experience what it is to wrestle with God. Lord, that doesn't look good on you. And this is the big thing, I think, to take away from Habakkuk chapter 1. The permission and the example to really pray, to really wrestle with God, on the basis of our situation and on the basis of what we know of him, bringing those things together. Jesus himself is the perfect example of this when he hung dying on the cross, paying for our wrongdoing, and called out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's appropriate that this is a communion service where we'll remember his sacrifice in our place, his wrestling in our place, even as we think about how we in prayer can enter into that same space following Habakkuk's example. A little bit of clarification before we move on, because our situation is different from Habakkuk's. Remember that he was praying on the basis that God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. The same does not apply to England or any other country in the world, despite the nationalistic songs. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's pastures green? No. No, they didn't. Jesus never came to England. God hasn't made a covenant with this nation or any other. No, what God has now done through his son, through his sacrifice, is to make a new covenant with a multinational people scattered throughout the world, the Church of Jesus Christ. It's written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. A covenant where the punishment for our wrongdoing has already been taken by Jesus on the cross. A covenant where the blessings that are rightfully his are shared with us to be the children of God. That's the message that Jesus sent out into the world. That has reached us far away in England even. And that applies to whoever puts his or her faith in Jesus. God includes us in his family. Which means 
As we learn to pray like Habakkuk, of course we'll cry out on behalf of the nation, on behalf of our city. Knife crime matters to God as precious people created to him, by him, in his image, are murdered and maimed. Of course we cry out about those things, but even more so, we want to cry out about the state of the church. We want to pray for revival, to use the old-fashioned word. We want to bring the state of the church to God and say, Lord, why do you put up with all this division, the corruption, the false teaching, the false motives? Why do you put up with us here at St. Helens? Why are we so weak so often? Why don't you transform us to be the church, the beautiful bride that you want us to be? Lord, this doesn't look good on you. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come and work amongst us now and come back finally and make everything right. That's how Habakkuk trains us to pray. One more thing to take away from Habakkuk chapter 1. And that's the fact that God is in charge of world affairs and working in human history. That's the implication of what he says in verse 6 when he tells Habakkuk that he's raising up the Babylonians. The Babylonians don't recognise him as God. Verse 11 and verse 16 describe the way they worship their own power. That's what they put their faith in. That's what they live for. They give themselves 100% of the credit for their own rise. But behind the scenes, verse 6 says, it's God who has decided the next season is a season of judgment. And so the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to raise up this ruthless and impetuous people to carry out the judgment. How should that make us feel? Well, for starters, like wrestling with God in prayer. How should it have made the Israelites feel back then when they were defeated and their land destroyed and they were hauled off to Babylon as prisoners? Well, knowing that God had raised up the Babylonians meant they knew he was still in control in spite of all that. They could still trust him and his promises that the nation would be restored at the end of exile, even though for the season that he was giving them into exile, he was giving them what their wickedness and injustice deserved. How should you and I feel when we're faced with tragedy or illness when our nation is in disarray, when churches are bombed in Sri Lanka or the church worldwide faces all kinds of huge challenges. Well, knowing that God is the one who raises up and who brings down means that we know those things aren't random. He hasn't stopped loving us. He hasn't forgotten us, even when he's humbling us. So even as we learn to wrestle in prayer, which we do from Habakkuk, we also ask the question, what is God teaching me through all of this? Because it's from him. So is there something that needs to be corrected in me, in the church? Is there somewhere we've gone wrong? Is there something perhaps I've stopped trusting? Perhaps I've become like the Babylonians and started trusting my own strength and, and living for myself? Those are the sort of questions we'll ask. Well, today, what we've read... We've ended with chapter 2, verse 1. And Habakkuk, waiting for an answer. He stands watch like a sentry, taking up his position to keep alert for God's response. I'm not going anywhere, he says. So I'd encourage us all to come back uh, over the next couple of weeks to tune in and hear more uh, from this book. But even though Habakkuk chapter 1 doesn't really give answers to the questions and the wrestling 
those questions and the wrestling itself are really important. This is what the life of faith is like. It's okay to wrestle with God, to cry out, to express your feelings to him in prayer. It's encouraged to do that. At the same time as holding on to what you know of him and being prepared to wait 